the songs we sang this morning as they all pointed to the cross, pointed to the sacrifice and the, the gift of God in Jesus Christ for our salvation. What a, what a glorious thing. When I, when I get to that one where we sing, full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a Savior. That just kind of excites me a little bit to think that that is the, that is the truth of the gospel. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 as we are tying that chapter in with our understanding of union with Christ. Now for months now, since a month before Easter, we've been talking about the significance of and the importance of union with Christ. And we looked at various scriptures and in these last couple of few weeks we've tied it into to Romans chapter 8 because that chapter is such a, a glorious expression of of what it means to be in union with Christ. And today is no different. It, it may start out as we read it sounding like, well, what does that have to do with union with Christ? Trust me, it has everything to do with union with Christ because it's centered in the gospel. The thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to see most clearly in the whole book of Romans, uh, which we're not looking at right now, but in the whole book of Romans is the, the essence of the gospel. He starts out in verse 1 by talking about it's the gospel from God. And then at that point on, he just expounds the beauty of the gospel message and the grace of God and the power of God in salvation. And in, in chapter 8, he's kind of zeroing in on all of that so that we'll understand the significance of the gospel. Now, I want you to know that over the next months, not here, but in culture, in our nation, you're going to hear a lot of gospel messages. Now, gospel meaning good news. You see that the, the 2016 presidential campaign, if you haven't noticed, is beginning to heat up a bit. A lot of people saying a lot of things, and every one of them wants you to believe, every single one of them wants you to believe that their message, their, their campaign slogans, their campaign promises are all good news. They're all sort of man-made gospels, if you will. And they want you to believe that, hey, if you'll just vote for me and believe what I have to say, then we're going to enter into this almost utopian era where everything will be perfect. Dare I say, they speak not the truth. Uh, there, there is no human gospel that offers what the gospel offers. There is no human good news that says, oh, listen, I can set you free and I can make you happy, and I can make you prosperous, and I can give you everything you want. Just believe me. Just trust me. Don't buy it, because it's not true. There's only one gospel, only one good news, in all of history and in all of time, that is true to its promises. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel that brings us in union with Christ and gives us life in Him and hope in Him and salvation in Him and glory in Him and restoration in Him. And that's what Paul is dealing with in this passage we're looking at this morning, starting in verse 18 and going through verse 25. He's talking about suffering and glory that brings about restoration. That brings about a restoration of all things, not just our bodily uh, perfections, not just our bodily good, but all of creation, all of the universe. 
being restored to what God intended for it to be from the very beginning. He's really talking about heaven here and heavenly things that will be brought about when he comes to restore all things. That's a hope that we have and a hope that does not disappoint if we trust it and put our faith in it. That's what Paul wants us to see. Hear what he has to say beginning in verse 18. Follow along in your Bible with me if you would. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't say, I think I'll just become futile and frustrated and messed up. No, it wasn't subjected to it willingly, but because of him, that is God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself might also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom, the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that, that first fruits of the earth, the, the first taste of heavenly things, the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The Apostle Paul, in that passage, 18 through 24, is dealing with, with several things related to glory in God's children. To glory in those who are his adopted sons and daughters, those who are brought into his family. The first thing he wants to make clear is that suffering and glory belong together inseparably. Suffering and glory are partners in this thing. It's not that, hey, I'd like to avoid the suffering so that I might just know the glory. I'd like to avoid any suffering in this world if I could and, and just know the glory of Christ. Paul is wanting us to understand clearly that suffering is a part of the life we live on this earth. No, no matter what it might be. It, basically, in verse 18, when Paul says that, he, he declares this to us. He dares to tell us our present cancer and persecution and financial losses and loneliness and death, all our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He said, listen, understand this. Sufferings are reality, and glory is a reality, and they are inseparable in this world. If you suffer with him, you will also be glorified with him, because that suffering proves that you belong to him, according to Scripture. I know we're Americans. We're, we're citizens of the United States of America, the, the land of the American dream, the land that says we want to just be happy and healthy and wealthy and just have everything we want. And, and that American dream is a false dream for believers. Because our dream is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. It's not in stuff. It's not in material wealth. It's not in things that we can amass for ourselves. It's not in just staying healthy and happy. 
but it's in knowing Him and walking with Him and actually sharing in those sufferings. And, and, and so in that sense, Paul is wanting us to see that the sufferings and the glory characterizes two entirely different ages or eons. One is this age in which we now live, and it's, it's, it's characterized by suffering. Listen, I, I, you know, just little things can be suffering, and big things can. Many of our people in our church family have suffered greatly with, with various diseases, cancer and other things, and still are. And that's a part of this world, that's a part of this fallen world that we live in. And, and just the, the, the deterioration, the breakdown of our bodies. Listen, I've, I've realized that I'm not 24 years old anymore, just in the last two weeks. I've traveled and, and great trip, great mission opportunity, great time of praying and on the other side of the world. But man, my body is for two weeks now has said, you're crazy because you did that to me. We, we suffer in this pleasant world. And, 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 but yet this, we go through that in order that we might know the glory that is for the age to come. And Paul says, understand this, this, this suffering, this glory, they, they can't even be compared. They're, they're not comparable. We suffer now, but the glory that's yet to come in that age, in that coming time when we're in the presence of the Lord, that is such a glorious glory that you can't even compare it to what you're going through right now. It will make all of this vanish. It will make all this be forgotten. It will make all the suffering in this world just seem like it was insignificant then, significant now. Painful now. You know, it used to be that we talked a lot about that age in the church. Talked a lot about heaven. Remember, I remember when I was growing up, I heard sermons about heaven and about the consummation and Christ coming. And, and it seems like we, we just don't talk about that as much anymore. We're, it seems like we're so anchored in this world and so anchored in the things of this world, and we don't think about what is yet to come. But I want to tell you, the Scripture tells us that's where our hope lies, and that's where we ought to be looking to. I remember here when I was growing up, you know, well, the church is just so heavenly-minded, it's no earthly good. Well, we live in a day where the church is so earthly-minded that it's no heavenly good, because we think this is all there is. We think this is the best life now. We think this is what we got. Let's enjoy it. Let's live it to the fullness. And, and, and Paul is saying, don't you understand something? This is not the best that's to come. The glory of Christ is. And, and he talks about in this passage how the sufferings and the glory concern not only men and women, not only you and me, not only believers, but, but it really concerns all of God's creation. He talks about that when he says the whole creation has been subjected, has been subjected to futility, not of their own willingness, not by their own choice. I mean, trees and, and, and seas and, and, and the earth don't choose things. They're inanimate objects. But they're under the judgment and the curse of God because of what took place in the garden with Adam and Eve at the fall. So it's affected everything. And so starting in verse 20, the, the Apostle Paul really wants to see through verses 22 that, that suffering and glory are part of God's creation. They're, they're, they're affecting all of God's creation and, and everything that there is. He, he says, 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, that is God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For, if, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together, even until now. Paul says, I want you to understand, creation was subjected to frustration and futility because of the fall. This reference has to be to judgment that came about when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, after they had sinned, after they had disobeyed God. And, and Paul says, I want you to understand, it didn't just affect man. It just didn't affect Adam and Eve's posterity that followed them. It, it also has to do with everything there is. The whole earth was affected by it. And, and it says it groans. The, the whole creation groans and desires to be set free. The whole creation groans and suffers pains like childbirth e- even until now. Somebody asked me Wednesday night, they said, well, what does that mean, the creation groans? I mean, what does it mean that, I mean, we understand our groaning, and Paul will talk about that in a minute, we'll deal with, our, with human beings, believers' groanings, but, but what does it mean the whole creation groans? Have you ever seen a hurricane? That's a groaning. You ever seen a tornado? That's a groaning. Ever, ever seen an earthquake? That's, that's the earth groaning and moaning under the, under the frustration and under the futility that is a part of the fall. I mean, folks, those things weren't meant to be. Never intended for those kind of things to take place. Those are, those are results of the fall. And Paul says that's because God placed the, church, the, the world, the creation, everything in the universe under that futility for which it even desires to be liberated. Next time you hear of an earthquake somewhere, think about that's the earth groaning to be set free. Next time you see a hurricane coming and, and, and a storm's coming, recognize that's the, that's the creation groaning to be set free, to be liberated. And, and Paul talks about that liberation. He says that the, the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay in, in the second part of verse 21. He says that, that's sort of a negative liberation. It'll be set free from this decay and all that's around them. But then there's a positive side of it too. It'll be liberated into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Literally into the freedom of their glory. The scripture tells us that in that day God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to populate it. We're going to rule and we're going to reign with Christ. And, and, and there'll be no hurricanes. There'll be no earthquakes. There'll be no problems there'll be no cancer there'll be no sickness we'll just see creation in its in its edenic glory as it was in the creation when god created the heavens and the earth and set adam and eve in that garden so 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 paul says the creation is going to be liberated it's going to be set free and, and, and the creation is going to keep groaning right up until the time that that happens. There, there's not going to be a, a, oh, it's going to get better and the hurricanes are going to stop. And we're going to control the weather and we'll, help the, we'll put some kind of uh, something in that will stop the, the earthquake. No, those things are going to keep groaning right up until the very end, Paul says in verse 22. Because it's groaning and it's suffering the pains of childbirth. The pains like like giving birth to a child. Now, we men don't understand that pain. You ladies do. And and Paul says that's what the earth is doing right up until the time when Christ comes together. 
I, I like the way J.B. Phillips translated that verse 22 in his, uh, in his paraphrase of the New Testament. Phillips gets it so good so many times. He uses another metaphor other than childbirth. He says, the whole creation is on tippy-toe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Think about that. The whole creation is on tippy-toe looking to see when God brings his family all together and shows their adoption in its fullness. And creation says now we are liberated to see the glory of the family of God. We're liberated to be a part of all of that. And we're set free. It's going to be a new heaven. It's going to be a new earth. But Paul says even more so this union with Christ in, in verses 23 through 25, this union of Christ shows sufferings and glory of God's children, not just creation. It's also of God's children. He says, and not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves, we, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What in the world does that mean? It means that as he's already spoken about, the Holy Spirit comes in this union with Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The Holy Spirit comes and bears witness to our adoption. The, the Holy Spirit enters our life and, and changes us and, and brings about conviction and brings about righteousness and shows us what is right and what is wrong in our life. The Spirit is at work within us. And that's kind of the first fruits of heaven. You ever thought about that? The sweetness of the Holy Spirit dwelling in a believer's life is the first fruits, the promise. The first fruits, the, the freshness of what God is going to do in absolute completion in your life when you see him face to face. No, the Holy Spirit coming doesn't take away your cancer always. It, it doesn't take away your persecution always. It doesn't take away your pains and your aches and your, your struggles in this life. No, but it does say, I am with you in the middle of all of that. I'm there with you. And I'm with you in such a way to, to give you strength and give you hope and give you encouragement. I'm, I'm there with you in the midst of whatever you're going to go through. I am there with you. I am the first fruits for you to taste just a, a tiny taste of heaven that is yet to come. Let me ask you that. What does that say to you about living the Christian life now? What does that say about facing suffering and facing pain that you're going through but yet looking beyond that and saying, you know, I know this is a part of life right now, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that He's going to not only give me glory that is His, He's not, gonna, he's not only going to bring me into His glory, but He's also going to restore me. He's going to restore this body. Some of you have heard me do funerals before for believers. And one of my greatest joys at a funeral is to stand over the coffin and declare what we have prayed for is now a reality. There is full and complete healing. Now, I know when we pray for that, we're meaning something sort of different. I know that when we pray for that, we're praying, Lord, 
Heal right now. I mean, restore right now. Make things right right now so they can be back with me and be a part of my life and, and, and we can kind of enjoy life together in the now. I know that's what we're praying for, but I want you to understand. I want people to understand that they're grieving that their prayers have been answered. There is now a healing and a restoration and a perfection that goes beyond anything that could have ever happened on this earth. That's important to see. It's important to understand and to grasp because because this first fruits of the Spirit, while it gives us a taste of heaven, it does not give us the fullness and the reality of being in His presence like even death will bring for a believer, for one who knows Christ. So we have the first fruits of the Spirit, Paul says. We have the Spirit indwelling us, living within us, working in our lives, and we can know that. Second thing he says is that we too groan inwardly. We groan within. We're just like the creation does. We've got the first fruits of the Spirit, but even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. Now, wait a minute. Back in verse 15, didn't he just say, you've not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again? but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I mean, Paul, Paul says there, you're already adopted into the family. You can already have that intimacy and that, and that oneness, that union with Christ and with God, and you can cry out, Abba, Father. He says there, we we're already have the spirit of adoption. We've adopted the family. And then down here he says, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption. Is, is Paul confused? Is, is Paul somehow contradicting himself and saying, well, you, you know, yeah, you sort of did, but no, you don't. And what? No, he's not at all. He's saying you are, if you are in Christ and in union with Christ, you are adopted into God's family. You're a part of the family right now. As I said earlier in my prayer, this is like a family reunion when we gather every Sunday to worship with our spiritual family, adopted into the family of God. That is a reality, but it is a reality that is not yet fully understood and fully appreciated and fully exercised and, and there's coming a time Paul says and, and we're groaning for that when, when we are sick when we are in pain when, when we are, are hurting and, and, and frustrated and, and when we are, are feeling bad there's something within us that says Lord show me your glory show me your presence and, and that is just a groaning for that which is yet to come by His grace and for His own glory and for our being built into Him. We wait eagerly for our adoption because that adoption, that final and full and complete adoption, will bring about the redemption of our body. Redemption of our body. The restoration of our body. You know, we talk the same way about salvation, don't we? we? We say that we are saved if we are in Christ, and we are. We say that we have been saved because we placed our faith in Christ, we trusted in Christ, and there is salvation that is settled and sure. And, and we talk about being saved from the penalty of sin. All of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. That's settled, that's done. 
But there's also a sense biblically which talks about we are now being saved. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, but we are being saved, if you will, from the power of sin. And sin ought to have less hold on you today than it did yesterday. Ought to have less hold on you tomorrow than it did today. Because there's that progression of being saved. There is, there's justification that as we have been saved, there is There is sanctification in that we are being saved. But there is also that great truth that one day we shall be saved in the future when we enter into His presence. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about that final and complete salvation, that that consummation, that redemption of the body, that that, that bringing everything into its right order, that's, that's doing away with all cancer, doing away with all eye problems, doing away with all whatever you're struggling with and everything made right as it was in the creation we hope paul says in verse 24 for we hope that we in hope we have been saved that's in the aorist tense that's in the past tense we have been saved but we're saved in hope hope of what yet is yet to come hope in what is promised You see, back to those presidential campaigns, they're going to promise you a whole lot. I hope you don't don't put a whole lot of hope in it. I don't care if it's Democrat, Republican, Independent, or whatever. They're going to make a whole lot of promises, but I hope you don't put a lot of hope. I hope you don't put a lot of hope in it. Two types of hope there. Because if your hope is in a human gospel restoring things as they ought to be, your hope will be dashed on rocks and you'll be disappointed. But Paul is saying here, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in His redemption. Our hope is in this union with Him, and that will never disappoint. As a matter of fact, verse 25, he says, we wait patiently for it with perseverance, but we hope. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly, we, we wait eagerly, for it. We wait eagerly for the fulfillment, for the consummation, for the completion. Let me ask you a simple question. To you. Question to you. What is God's promise of glory worth to you? What is God's promise of glory worth to you? Is it, well, it's going to be nice when he gets here, but right now I don't think a lot about it. Listen, we need to let our lives declare that worth. We need to let our lives declare that our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is not in the government. Our hope is not in courts. Our hope is in Christ, in glory, in that age to come. That's where our hope lies for all fulfillment. If you don't declare the supreme value of your glorious inheritance as adopted sons and daughters of God, 
you will certainly and surely declare the supreme value of earthly comfort and popularity and self-preservation and all these other values that the American dream lays out before you. But that makes people light and insubstantial. There's no real meaning for life. Because you're placing your meaning on things that are going to pass away. Things are going to either rust or thieves can steal or it'll, it'll vanish. Paul is saying here, listen, here's where, your supreme, here's where your supreme value has to be placed. It's in Christ Jesus. I, I love that hymn we sing regularly. Christ is, Christ is my life. He's my everything. He's all. You know, he's not just a part of my life. He's not just an appendage. He's not just something I added on to kind of hope that maybe he can help me out a little bit every now and then when I want him to, but not get in my way when I don't want him to. Christ is my all. He's my life. He's not a part of my life. He is my life. That's what the believer professes. That's what the believer in Christ is proclaimed. He is my all in all. He is my Lord. More than just a Savior, He's my Lord. He's my boss. He's my commander-in-chief. He's the one whom I follow. Because He's the one who has... Supreme worth, supreme glory, and supreme value. So I ask you again, what is God's promise of glory worth to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to us corporately? As the body of Christ that gathers to sing praises to his name, to declare through, through our singing, to declare through our uh, proclamation of the word, to declare through our praying, to declare through our coming to the Lord's table, to declare through baptism. What are we declaring? That we're religious? That our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, your word is perfectly clear. If we are in you, we will suffer. And even those who aren't in you as part of creation will suffer. But Lord, as your children, we're not exempt from that. As a matter of fact, that suffering is is designed to to turn our attention to you, to turn our focus to you. Lord, when things are going great, we think we're doing it ourselves. It's designed to turn our attention to you. Lord, let it be so. Our sufferings in this world are designed to 
to let us look to the glory that's yet to come when we are manifested in your presence, in all your glory, when we, when we are, are, see you as you are and, and we, we are made like you. Sufferings lead to looking to glory and waiting for your restoration of all things. A new heaven, a new earth created to where things might be reestablished as they were before the fall. Father, it is easy very easy to become idolatrous of the things of this world. Good things that you give us and you bless us with. Father, I ask you this day turn our attention to you, turn our hope totally to you. Lord, let us taste the first fruits of your Spirit at work within us, filling us that we might boldly proclaim your truth. Father, we thank you. And wait upon your consummation of all things in your second coming. Father, now I pray for men and women here who don't know you. I pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit might move in their hearts and open their eyes to see their need for the Savior and see that you are the only Savior. And open their hearts to believe in you, put their trust in you and you alone. Father, they might have that first fruits taste of glory. Pray for others, Lord, who have just kind of become discouraged and have looked to themselves rather than you. Father, draw them back. Others, Lord, whom you're leading to be a part of this church family, make that clear to them, Lord. Show them where you'd have them plant their life and their ministry to serve you and you alone. Fathers, we sing this great hymn before the throne of God above. Let us see you in all your radiant glory, in all your radiant holiness, even as Isaiah did when he saw you in the temple and he cried out and he heard the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And may we as Isaiah, fall before you in confession and repentance and obedience to your call. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.